कर And welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and our guest today is Ran Samantha Chen. Before I introduce Sam, thank you all for tuning in, and please chat with us during the interview. Your comments will appear in our studio, and we'll weave them into our conversation. And as always, if you enjoy the episode, please become a patron or patroness to help me keep the podcast going. And now I'm excited to introduce Ran Samantha Chen. Sam's new novel, The Family Chow, will be published by W.W. Norton in February 2022. She's the author of two previous novels, All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost, and Inheritance, and a story collection, Hunger. Sam is the director of the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. She lives with her husband and her 13-year-old daughter in Iowa City, Iowa, and she describes motherhood as need more time. Now, please join me in welcoming... Sam. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank you so great much for you. joining me. It's great to see you too. So let's start with those three words you use to describe writer motherhood. Need more time. <laughs> Tell me a bit about that. I just, oh no, I, you know, I spent a, a while trying to come up with three words. It's not the easiest thing to do. I, I felt like I could write a thousand words about it. Um, or, you know, like just straight declarations like, I'm through. <laughs> you know, this is too much. Um, but, but basically need more time was what I, what I came up with because honestly, I, I, you know, I reached a point this spring semester where I realized that for the last few weeks, everything I do that I want to do that isn't part of what I'm supposed to do is cutting into something I'm supposed to do. Mm. Like I, I just don't have any time to do anything except what I'm supposed to be doing, which is not great for writers. Not great. I haven't actually had a chance to write for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And something that I know you wanted to talk about was how you actually figured out how to write a novel in the midst of all the things that you're doing. But before we get there, let's talk about some of the things that you, you need to be doing. What, what do you need to do in your daily life? Oh, what do I need to do in my daily life? Well, I have a delightful 13-year-old daughter who's who's been in the house with me since, you know, the middle of March 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my husband is a teacher and he spends a few days a week outside of the house and so it's basically me and Ty, my daughter, and she's just really lovely and really not a difficult child, but it's just different trying to get things done when someone else is in the house. Also, I think if I were alone, I would not be cooking. I've just been doing a lot more food preparation in the last year than I'm, than I usually do during the day. I mean, when my husband's home, he does it. So he's great. He's really great, but um, there's a lot of that. Then there's, there's, there's that there's, you know, talking to my husband when he is around. And then I also have a day job, which has turned out to be like really, really time consuming during the pandemic in unexpected ways. Um, I have a 
I am responsible for a graduate program where there are about, you know, more than 90 poets and fiction writers who, most of whom, almost all of whom have, you know, given up locations in some other place to come here, which is great. Um, you know, in a usual year, they come and they meet each other. But in the last year, they've been sort of, you know, giving up their life to come here and take classes online, which is complex. The university requires that they be here, but the classes are online. So we've been rolling out a whole set of activities that don't involve being person to person. I will say the students have been really lovely and have come up with a ton of outdoor events for themselves. But I do feel responsible for them. I feel like like they came out here because of our program and I have to like come up with something for them to do. And then on top of that, there's teaching in the program and then also administrative work, which has been really challenging at any university. But I think these state university systems have been really challenged for a lot of reasons, some of them political, some of them economic and budget related, some of them educational, you know, related to education and just basic reasons. It's just been a really, really complicated year for everyone. I mean, I'm amazed that we made it through the year without some kind of massive, massive disaster. Knock on the wood. I should, we're, we're, we're gra- graduation is tomorrow, so it's possible that we will make it through the year. <laughs> well, and thank you for joining us right before graduation, too. I know that must be incredibly busy. And you were telling me before the interview, you're having 80 people to your house tomorrow. Is it well, tomorrow? We I mean, we invited 80 people. We don't think 80 people will make it over. I mean, some people are still being cautious and not wanting to go to even outdoor events. Um, we're holding an outdoor event. I, we, one thing we did during the pandemic, and I think a lot of people did this, and I don't know if I'm going to, how I'm going to look at this in the future, but we did move. We moved to another house. And this house actually has a lot of, it's not like a lot of space, but compared to our old house, which had like a tiny wedge in front and then this tiny pocket in back, it has enough space so that we can invite sort of people over to raise a glass of bubbly to celebrate their own graduations. So I'm inviting the poets and fiction writers who graduated this spring and who are graduating this spring, and also the ones who are still in town who graduated last spring, who didn't get anything. I mean, they basically had to shut down in March and then all of the usual festivities surrounding the end of their time in the program were just abruptly canceled. And I don't know, it's, it's sort of upsetting, you know, to think about. And some, a lot of them are still in town. And so I ordered two cakes. One cake has their year and one cake says 2021. So we'll see. Good. That's helpful. Well, yeah. tell me more about how you how you made it to Iowa Writers Workshop. Like, what brought you there? Oh, sure. And, yeah. Well, uh, okay. So, I'm married to a visual artist, and I'm a writer. And I would say that if you were going to stack up like various artistic professions, I would say writer is actually more secure than visual artist. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm happy to argue i'm I'm happy to i mean musician is also really bad actor is probably <laughs> the worst i'm not sure um so i ended up getting that job and i i you know a job that required us to move here and the way that it happened was i went here as a student and i knew they were looking for people and i would chat with the administrator connie brothers and she would we would talk about people that we thought would be good to direct the program 
And I would throw all these names at her, like, how about this person? How about this person? The problems always come up like, A, the faculty doesn't like their writing, or B, they're high strung and, you know, it would be really hard for them, or C, they don't want to move. You know, they have a different job. Um, they don't need a job. Uh, you know, just like a whole bunch of things. And then eventually she asked me to apply. This is really Dick Cheney, right? It seems like, you know, it's like he was on the the group of people looking for the vice president and then he became the vice president. <laughs> but that's, I, eventually, I eventually applied super late in the process. And then I was one of four finalists, which turned into this like weird um, national media zoo, like the AP decided that this would be an interesting story for them. And they ran and they, they ran a, an article naming me and the other three finalists, all of whom were like white guys, two of whom were considerably older than I, and they ended up giving me the job, which I don't know what I think about it. I, you know, it's funny. I was in this stage of life where everything was happening super fast. I just published my second book, which was my first novel, which was just a terrible process of writing. Um, it was just so hard to write that novel. I think, I mean, I would count on my, I can count on one hand the number of times that I truly enjoyed working on that novel. And um, it was so hard. And so when I was finished, I sort of raised my head up and I felt it was like seven years later, felt like Rip Van Winkle. Like I woke up and everything was different. I was getting married. I was, you know, thinking of having a family, um, you know, looking around, seeing what was around. And then all of a sudden I just happened to apply for this job thinking that I wouldn't get it, but that it would be good to practice applying for jobs. And then I ended up getting it. And the next thing we know, we move everything we own from Somerville, Massachusetts to Iowa City. And then we had a child the following year. So I've oh, now yeah. been director for I know it was crazy. Yeah. You know, my students. OK, no offense to them. I love my students. A lot of my younger students write stories about like middle-aged characters. And I find this really fascinating because they're in this wonderful period of life where they don't actually need to think about it, <laughs> but they are thinking about it. They're trying to look ahead and all of their characters have this sort of, sort of angsty bored feeling, I would say. And I'm thinking, no, that's not what it's been like for me. It's been like one <laughs> crazy thing after another, like everything is just happening. It just, Bam, 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 bam. You hardly have any time to think. At some point, I'll look back, and I'm sure I'm going to think, you should have realized X, Y, and Z. But at this point, I can't see it. I've got my nose right in it. Yeah. Oh, that brings up so many questions I want to ask you. Okay, well, go Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I also feel the same way, and my husband keeps saying that we're middle-aged. I'm like, I, how can I be middle-aged? I'm certainly not middle-aged. You, you don't, you don't look middle-aged. I don't oh, believe no, you're middle-aged. I, I, yeah, my birthday was yesterday, and I turned 40. Oh, I'll wow. Share that. It's like, oh, wow. That's great. Congratulations. Happy birthday. Thank you. No, 40 is a great decade. It is an amazing mm-hmm. decade. And yeah. it's a whole decade of life. Yeah. It's, it's really so nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll take the word for it. I look no, forward great. to the 40s. Um, yeah. But, yeah, no, it feels busier than it's ever been. So um where do we start? Well, if you I'm were a five-year-old, you'll be busy for a while. Sorry? Uh, yeah. No, no, I'm going to back way up to um your first book. So tell oh, me about sure. the experience of writing the first one, and then what made the second one so difficult? Oh, God. Okay. So 
I didn't start writing until I was in my mid-twenties. I really had always wanted to be a writer since I was four years old, but I was trying to be practical because my parents are immigrants and they really didn't want me to do something impractical. And, you know, my sisters all had normal lives. (laughs) I have three sisters. So my two older sisters, one's a lawyer, one's a doctor. They're doing just fine. Um, But I I really reached a point in my mid-20s that I think other people I know who've been interested in running have also hit where they suddenly understand that they really just don't want to do anything else. And if they're not going to do the one thing they want to do in life, then there's really – it's really hard to justify just what you're doing. You just have to do it. Um, And so I I – started taking these community classes in Cambridge, Mass, and wrote some stories and applied to Iowa, actually, and came here. Um, and so, yeah, I had this big goal. I was had just started writing, and my big goal was that I was going to learn how to write short stories. It seemed possible and manageable and, you know, decent and all that. And I was young. I was, like, 26. So... You know, it took me a really long time to write these stories, but I worked on them for a while, and then I, I guess I was, you know, published them. Um, and meanwhile, all along, you know, I'd always known that the thing that I loved to read was novels. I love reading novels. And so I always thought it would be really cool, like most cool, to try to write one. And that is where I got into trouble because I – um I mean, frankly, like to be totally frank, I was under contract. I published the first book, the collection as part of a two book deal. And I don't know. It's very, uh, it was a stressful experience for me because I'd never written a novel, didn't understand how they were different from stories. I had chosen this ridiculous topic, like a completely ridiculous topic, like, I wanted my story to take place in 20th century China, which everyone knows is just this completely crazy century. Um, my parents are from China, and they uh, had told me tiny things about being there in the war when I was growing up, and I just never, they never really talked about it. It's the silence that a lot of people who've been through political trauma um or personal trauma often don't want to discuss. And so I basically spent, I'd say seven years reconstructing an imaginary life for characters, one of whom was similar in age to my mother, the the protagonist and narrator. And it, it was really just this work I did because I wanted to understand. I wanted to write about my parents, but also because it was under contract. If I had not had a contract I don't know if I would have been stupid enough to attempt this project, but when you write a proposal for a project, you know, you sort of have to complete the proposal. So I did this being a Capricorn. It took me forever. It was really hard. I had to do a ton of research later. Shortly after I published the book, Jonathan Safran Foer came out with everything is illuminated and he revealed in interviews that he had never done any research for this book about returning to, you know, the land of his ancestors. And I thought, why didn't I think of that? Why? Why did I, like, brush up my college Mandarin and, like, ask people to read all these old newspapers? Like, why was I doing this? I could have just made it up. But I think that part of the journey for me, I know, I just didn't didn't occur to me, like, stupidly, 
part of the journey for me was simply that I needed to know for myself. And it's a funny thing, and I don't think every writer is like this, but after I went through that process of writing this book, I haven't wanted to write, I haven't wanted to revisit that whole century in any way. Like, I have zero desire to write anything set in the century, in the place, like nothing. It was like it was working it out. I was working it out, and now it's gone. Mm -hmm. But it was horrible. It was just ridiculous. <laughs> there was a point when I was trying to figure out how to end the novel. Um, well, every step in the process of writing this novel took just a ridiculous amount of effort. So, for example, trying to figure out the point of view took years. Trying to figure out the narrator, which narr you know, not just the point of view, like first or third, which it ended up being kind of a hybrid, but the narrator, figuring out which of the characters was the narrator took years. And the um, the point of telling and, you know, oh, my God, everything about it. And I remember getting to the middle and feeling OK and then having to rewrite the ending like six or seven times. So Did you, it was which just, it like just, feedback or tell me about well, every once in a while. Every I like maybe three times total. I showed the novel to my editor, Jill Bylosky at Norton, who's a really wonderful person and also a writer. Um, and a poet and a memoirist, you know, novelist, poet, memoirist. She's a woman of letters. And she would give me helpful feedback, but she was sort of experienced enough to know that I wasn't at a point where she could really, how do you say, um, tinker. There was nothing, it was nothing like that. I was still at this point where what I was supposed to be doing was um, figuring out like really big things. And that just took me such a long time. And instead of I don't know. I think some of my students are much smarter than I am. They come up with these ideas and then they just sort of they're fine with them. They just run with them because they figured out a kind of constraint. They figured out a constraint of like what needs to be cut out of the of the picture, whereas I was stuck like with way too much in the picture. I think so much of writing a novel is about coming up with a set of like constraints or, or guidelines are a way to understand what you're doing so that you can proceed in the right direction. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. A ton of brilliant novels were written where the author had no idea what they were doing. So who knows? I don't know. It was really, so really hard. You, I'm so glad it's sounds over. like it. No. So how did you apply what you learned from that torturous process to the next novel? Oh, well, I had this rule with myself, you're going to write something short now, because I was never the kind of person who was capable of writing a lot. Even my short stories aren't very long, and it took me forever to be able to write, be able to write 28 pages. It took me two years of writing stories before, and this is in 12-point Geneva font, double-spaced, you know, much larger font than Times New Roman, which is what everyone uses now. This is a million years ago. I mean, the thing is, when Apple had Geneva as its font, I don't know if anyone remembers this except me. Um, yeah, so I just, um, I really just think that, uh, I mean, writing, writing something long was hard. And so I thought I'd write something short. And then I, a lot was happening. As I said, I moved here. I took this job. I learned how to do this job. I had, um, you know, a child, and I think the second book just came out of me really fast uh, because 
I had been ho- holding it up in for such a long time. I mean, it was about something completely unrelated to, you know, 20th century China. It was about the life of, of some poets. And what I put into it was basically everything that I had learned or thought about um, when I was learning to write. So a lot of the things, like the lines that people say in the book, are literally things people said to me. I mean, I mixed it all up and I put them all into different characters and, you know, messed with all of that. But there were literally things people said to me, like someone literally said to me, I don't think writers actually get better. I think somebody that I truly respect, who's known a ton of writers, like more than anyone I know, said this to me. She said, I think they write better books. They learn to write better books, but they don't become better writers. So this is the kind of stuff that I put into the book, mostly just processing it. Uh, it was much faster. It was so fast and easy. And I, I still really enjoy that book. And I reread it and I like it. I will not touch the other book. <laughs> I won't even look at it. <laughs> well, we have some super fans here. We have Liz Farmer who says, I'm a huge super fan of that novel. I adore it. Oh, yeah. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Liz. Yeah. And Liz is an author with her own wonderful book uh, who's been on the show. So thank you, Liz. Um, Thanks so much. Yes. Yeah, so. Let's talk a little bit about the birth of your daughter. Now, you said you wanted to be a mother since you were four, but did you always want to be a mother or was that something? that? No, no. I. okay. so when I was really young, I watched my mom. I was very close to my mom. My mom was not happy being the mother of small children in a house in Wisconsin full time um, when I was growing up. And I I don't think I was completely aware of it on a on a conscious level but I knew about I knew it on an unconscious level I knew that she was bored because my mother was incredibly smart and always wanted to be sort of intellectually stimulated and I I, 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 you know we bored her Um, I know she loved me a lot and I was super close to her and we could really talk but I also know that she had other things she wanted to do um, and the other problem my mother had was moving to this country when she was 18, which is just at an age when you're just about to master your native language as a writer. You know, you're moving into that age. Um, she left. And so I feel like she didn't have the pleasure of writing a ton in Chinese as a young adult or adult. And then she came to the U.S. and had to learn a new language and never, never achieved the kind of confidence that she had in her Chinese. And, you know, being in Wisconsin, we didn't run into a ton of other Chinese people, which is something I write about in my my new book. Um, but, uh, but, you know, she just, she just, it made it really clear to me. She would say things to me like this, and keeping in mind that I was born in 1965, and my mother is a creature of a generation where most people, you know, stayed at home. They did not go out and get, like, careers. Um, so she said to me, there are plenty of other things to do. Um, if you clean your house, uh, you will... You know, th- there are more important things to do than clean your house, basically, is what she said. Hmm. Um, she was just like, don't do these things. They're a waste of time. I mean, one reason I think she was able to say that is because she's, she got sick. She got rheumatoid arthritis when she was, um, you know, 42, actually. 
um, which basically meant that she had to throw away some of her perfectionist strategies. She was a big perfectionist, and she basically just had to give up on that. Um, and I think that's why she was able to tell me that you just have to focus on things. I mean, our, I, I would turn my camera around so that you could see this table. Actually, it's not so bad, but it's just covered with stuff. Like I don't, I don't sit down and clean it up every day or things like that. Yeah. It's, it's got yeah. a ton of stuff. I'm, I'm knitting mittens, actually. I have like a ton of pairs of mittens on this table, actually. Like. Oh, I'd love to see a pair well, of mittens. Want to see some mittens? I do. Well, here's some of the mittens. Oh my gosh. They're, they're like, um, how do you, yeah, I really enjoyed making them. I like this purple pair a lot because of the sort of speckle. And then I also made these kind of mitered, really colorful mitered mittens. Sometimes when the students need something to raffle or give away at a reading or something, I give them a pair of mittens or I give them to friends. And it's just been a long winter. I just did a lot of knitting. Yeah. Yeah. When you can't write anymore, (laughs) you need something to do with your your hands. Yeah. I finished, I finished my novel this year. And so basically I had stopped knitting for the last two years of my writing this novel. And then I finished the novel and I was doing okay. I like, did an art project and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden I just started knitting like a crazy person. So it's back. The knitting is back. The writing is gone. Hopefully something will happen. That'll make me start writing again and stop knitting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to talk about the new novel in a second and then like what's next with writing. But um, first let's go back again to when your daughter was born. Um, Tell me about that period. So you had just moved oh, yeah. to Iowa City, you had a new job, you had a new baby. Um, you so were... I feel so I feel yeah. so lucky that I was able to have a child. I was 42 when I had Ty. So, like, that's lucky. And because of my luckiness, um, because of my luck, I was not unhappy. Uh, also, I had a super kind, generous husband who, it turns out, like, evolved amazingly as a father. He, you know, he was always a shy person, but after we had Ty, he liked to strap around and walk around downtown just so that people would, he just felt like a member of the human race after he had a child, and I don't think he did before that. He will say that. He just became a much more outgoing person, um, a much more, I don't know, how to describe what he's always been reserved and he just changed a lot. And I, myself, um, I just, uh, I really loved being pregnant. This is, it just felt really good. It felt like my body was just doing something. I, I didn't have to concentrate on it or focus on it. I was like accomplishing stuff without, trying at all and then we had the baby and it was a lot of work and very different and I think that uh the first maybe the first couple of weeks I thought okay you have too many things in your life now you have a baby you have a marriage you have a job and you have your writing you need to eliminate one of these things in order to write you can't eliminate the baby or the husband apply for a fellowship so that you can take some time off or you will never write again. <laughs> That's what it basically felt like. <laughs> it was like, whoa, this is really different. So I applied um, 
I got a fellowship, a Guggenheim fellowship, and I was able to spend two semesters, like, working on something, which turned out to be uh, All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost. I thought I was working on something else, but I never did finish that project. I, I just finished All is Forgotten, and it was a pleasure. It was really wonderful. I I think um, what happened, there was a period, first of all, it was a short book, and those are easier to write, I think, than long books. I mean, generally, not necessarily always. But there was a um, there was a period of time when I would get up and nurse the baby early in the morning, and then Rob would take the baby for like an hour and a half, and then I would work on this book. And I had the Guggenheim, which gave me sort of like a mental excuse to work on a, a something, but I didn't know what I was working on. And Rob actually said to me, "Well, why don't you work on this?" mysterious project for a month of your fellowship you won't be wasting time if you only work on it for a month so I did and it turned out I got I made a lot of progress and I thought how about one more month and then I so I just basically finished it in you know six months and then I had let it sit because school started up again my job started up again and then I revised it Um, because I took my two semesters off like I didn't take them off in a row because uh our program doesn't really allow for me to take time off in the spring semester at all. Admissions is just too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, it it was great. It was a wonderful experience. I never expect to have this experience again where a novel just comes out and it feels right and it's fine. And I mean, it's true that the whole time I was working on it, I thought no one would ever read it because it's a story of a bunch of writers in an MFA program, which frankly is that not that interesting? It's not that interesting. <laughs> but but um, I think the, the novel, it starts with them in a program, and then it sort of traces what happens to their lives afterward. And that, I think, is what makes it interesting to me. What made it interesting to me as a project was sort of pulling their lives out and seeing what became of the people who behaved in a certain way when they were a certain age, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it was really interesting to me. Especially given my job where I was observing people all the time, you know, wondering what would become of them. Um, so, yeah, that was a real pleasure. And then I fell into a hole. I think when Ty started running around, I think it was a lot harder for me to focus. I've always been somebody who has trouble multitasking. It's one of my major problems. And so I really stopped writing for almost four years. I mean, which I now think, oh, my God, I can't believe I survived that. But I did do a ton of knitting <laughs> just a ton it was ridiculous um the yeah so because my job is just overwhelming it's an overwhelming job it mm-hmm. and i had always been one of these writers who was kind of antisocial and always had a lot of time and didn't really you know have very many people in my life just a few really good friends and so i always had a lot of privacy a lot of time and even given all of that it was incredibly hard for me to finish like a book. And then the second book was hell. So really what happened after publishing All is Forgotten, I think, which was a gift. It was one of those gift things that happens sometimes. But after I published it, I, I basically had to start from scratch and construct a way to get writing done, despite the fact that I had, you know, this lovely child, only one. I don't know what I would have done if I had two, frankly. Um, I really don't. Uh, and then also, despite the fact that my job is truly, I think, an overwhelming job, 
And so I, I had to just start figuring that out from scratch, which is, in my opinion, the major accomplishment of my middle age was figuring out how to write the book I just finished. And I'm really grateful to everyone who helped me. Like my acknowledgments page is like four or five pages long. <laughs> I mean, it's so long. Uh, congratulations on finishing it. I know how oh, much of an thank you. Yeah, that's that's huge. Um, and so let's talk about building that that process back from scratch. So your daughter was where around like five or six when you started writing again? Okay, or? when I started building the process back from scratch, I think okay, here's what happened. The Vermont Studio Center invited me to come out and be a sort of like guest writer there, which basically means that you get five days at Vermont Studio Center, and during that time, you eat your meals with everyone, you teach a class, you meet with, you know, however many people want to meet with you um, to discuss their works, you read their manuscripts, but which is a fair amount of work. But the rest of the time, oh, you give a reading, but the rest of the time you're free, which for anybody who's been in a family situation is just an insane gift. It was just such a huge gift. And I sat there. I remember they gave us a little, they gave me a little apartment in this nice house, but it was a little apartment in the house. And I remember sitting in this comfy chair and thinking, Oh my God, this is what I needed. This is what I needed. I need to figure out how I can get more of this because I feel like myself for the first time in I don't know how many years. I was probably five and a half. So I started applying to artist colonies. The first time I applied to an artist colony, I was rejected, you know, because I didn't have any recent work. I didn't, you know, I didn't look like I'd been doing anything. And the fact is, I get that. But sometimes I feel that that's when you need to go most desperately to a residency. you, You know, but whatever. So I just sort of, because what I had used to apply was like, all was forgotten, but that was like really old by then. And they knew this. So I basically just scraped up time to, to, to scraped up like 20 pages of something, which is really what you need is like 20 pages that seem like they could be something meaningful. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a complete story because I was unable to finish a short story at the time. I was just, so I, I think I scraped up like an, just some pages. And then I got into Yaddo and I was there for 13 days. Ty was seven because, you know, this takes a long time. It's a long process. You apply one year and then the next year you go sometimes the following year. So Mm -hmm. when I went to studio center, I think she was five and a half. I went, I went to Yaddo when she was seven, it was 13 days. I'd never spent 13 days away from her before. Um, I was lucky because Somebody, my husband was, you know, he adores her. So he was, he and she have developed this really good relationship, partly based, I think, on what they do when I'm not at home. And I will tell you that the reason I ended up coming up with the strategy is that I ran into a male writer who was also a parent, um, who I had met when I was a Stegner fellow. He was not in my year. We, we met one year at AWP and he's like, how is your writing going? I'm like, I'm not writing. He said, this is what you have to do. You have to go to these residencies. You just have to go to the residencies. That's what I do. He said, and I don't, I'm okay. He said, I try to be a model father. I try to do everything I can possibly do to help my partner when I'm not, you know, when I'm at home and then sort of like, 
And then what I get to have is I get to have four weeks away from home. And I do this every, I think he did it once a year at once a semester. And I thought, wow, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can get away from not only my, you know, child with my job, but, but when I was at the Vermont Studio Center, that is when I started applying to, I used that time to apply to a residency. I got into Yaddo. Um, I went there for 13 days and the first, I'd say week and maybe even eight or nine days, I didn't get anything done. I just sat there, just, I don't even know what I was doing. I think it just was such a strange experience and I felt like I didn't have anything to say. Um, and then I just, I was having, I was having breakfast with one of the other writers and she told an anecdote about something that happened to her. Um, many, many, many years before the moment we were in. Um, and then I went home. There was something about the way she told the anecdote. Um, I just went back to my room and I started writing. And then by the time I had left, uh, I decided, I, you know, for my last two days I was there, I applied to another residency. And so basically it's just been, I've been doing one, basically managing to write from one residency to the next for, I think it was maybe five years after that. I mean, the number of, I mean, I have this elaborate chart where I applied to things. I think the number of times I've been to some of these places is embarrassing and embarrassing because um, I feel like I should have produced something by now. I think I've been to Yaddo three times, McDowell twice, Ragdale three or four times. Um, I've been to a place called Right on Door County, which is this wonderful place in Door County where you can live for a week um, and just be left alone for a week in a house. Uh, I went to the Rome Academy. I went to, I mean, basically I've just, I went to Hedgebrook, which is a wonderful place. Um, and basically, that's how I got my book done. Once when I was at McDowell, one of the composers, like one of the really sort of powerful McDowell composers said that um, he gets six months work of worth of work done every time he goes to McDowell for four mm-hmm. weeks. And if that's true, um, I think I've worked for six years on this book, yeah. just not counting the work I do when I'm not at a, at a residency. Oh, that's amazing. So, it's really weird. It's weird. I'm lucky because my husband was willing to take care of Ty. Um, I'm lucky because Ty, my mother told me once that some children are angry when their mother leaves them and act out in an angry way when the mother returns. She said this to me in a warning way. At one point she said to me also, you're lucky that she doesn't get angry. And the fact is she doesn't. She's a, she's a really lovely person. But even if she did get angry, I think I would just have to explain to her, I really need to do this. I can't not do this. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the other thing that helped me start getting work done was the recognition that I was really turning the corner. I was getting quite old. My own mother died during this time. Um, it, it was It became really clear to me that at a certain point you just have to get your work done or you will die without having accomplished it, which is a big deal yeah yeah um yeah oh, so I, got, I got the book done i want to okay, so I want to talk more about the book in a second. I think though 
Um, for many of the women listening right now who are interested in residencies and um, listening to um, the variety of places that are available, can you talk a little bit about your the logistics of applying? And as someone who directs a writing program, who may be your perfect position to give some advice about applications. I've actually read for a couple places, so I can actually give a little uh, information. Everywhere I've read for has sort of a follow, the following thing. Um, they don't give the readers too many things to read. It's not that you're overwhelmed. So you can really pay attention to the applications. And the, and the applications re- consist of generally 20 pages or so. I, I still think in pages instead of word count. So I guess that would be 6,000 words, wouldn't it? Um, 20 pages of a writing sample. When I, when I look at work for this kind of thing, the first thing I look at is the writing sample. I mean, it's really clear. And it's the same way with the MFA programs. The writing sample comes first. Um, 20 pages is not too bad, right? Like you can sort of try to make your work as strong as possible for 20 pages. So I try to encourage myself when I'm applying by thinking, I can try to write 20 pages, 20 good pages of something or a 20 page story, short story. Even if I want to write a novel and I've only written short stories, that's great. Short stories are great. So turning those in, then there's always, there's always a place where you put down, like, what do you plan to accomplish when you're here? You know, what, what, what is your plan? And okay, this is my honest opinion. If you have a plan, you should be as sincere as possible and as honest as possible in saying it. But if you don't have a plan because you're just overwhelmed, you should just make something up. <laughs> this is some real just, advice here, people. <laughs> no, serious. I mean, they won't mind if you go there and end up working on something else. Yeah. It's just you're not going to come knock on you your door have, and you're writing the thing you said you're going to write. <laughs> right. Exactly. And actually, in Ragdale, the, the director, Jeff, at the time said to us on our first day, I don't mind if you just go stare at Lake Michigan for three weeks. I really don't care. And that is the kind of liberating permission granting language that you can hear at a, at a residency <laughs> that makes you feel like, OK, maybe maybe it's OK if I'm not super productive maybe it's okay if i just do this thing anyway so yeah usually i'm there for a few weeks and i'll spend the first week just not doing anything and then i'll slow it'll slowly kick in and then i'll have some amazing periods some people of course are able to work nonstop. good for them i'm really proud of them but i i've not been that way anyway so then in the application i think um they ask you for a cv uh I don't know. They ask you if you've been to other residencies. These things, my guess is that it does help to have been to another one. That's my guess. I also think it helps to say I have never been to a residency before. So somewhere in between those two things, um, choose one of those two things to say. Because if you say I have never been before, it gives a person an empowering feeling. that Oh, I could give this person something that will really like help their writing. But if you say I've been to X, Y, and Z place, then, um, then the, the admissions committee could think, okay, this person is somebody who has been to X, Y, and Z place. So 
I guess we can have them here. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think there's a wrong answer to that, but I don't think there's any point to hiding it if you've never been. There's this thing in, in the literary world. I feel like people love discovering, quote unquote, people. That's the big thing. So, you know, make yourself discoverable. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think that I think that um, I think trying to be sincere and rather than trying to impress is, in my opinion, what will make the work memorable. And the, and the thing is, is I think that a lot of the um, residencies really do choose people on the basis. I mean, I would say like 95 percent on the basis of the writing sample. And the, there's two things to remember about that. One is there's the five percent. There are people who are tied. You know, there are people who might might get in and they might not. So then what matters is that they feel that you're sincere, right, in your mm-hmm. in your desires and efforts and that they can really make a difference to you. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, I, it is just so subjective. People's opinions about other people's work. I mean, I'm sure everyone knows this, but it's just ridiculous how how different people's opinions can be. Um, the same thing goes for applying to an MFA program or anything else. Like we change our we change up our admissions reading committee at our program every year because there's just there's always somebody new because we just don't we just don't believe that we're getting everyone right. There's always going to be a difference of opinion. So if you don't get into such and such residency, just keep reapplying. I think if you have the if you have the $30 or whatever it costs to apply and some places even have waivers, fee waivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's my take on that. I, I no, think definitely yeah. do it Thanks. because, Oh my God, that gift of time. Oh, here's one more thing that there's a ton of residencies that are either new or they're like in a faraway place or they're kind of low key that not everyone applies to. Like everyone has heard of like two of them and they all apply there, but there's like a million of them that you can go to. I mean, I've had a really great experience at places that are brand new or places where they don't feed you, but you can just go and sit in a house and work and eat snacks. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, just getting that time alone for me has been just a total saving um experience yeah yeah so tell me a little bit about the times where you're not able to be alone so i remember um when i met you first was at breadloaf and it was probably five four six years ago now something like that and i remember that you brought your daughter with you and probably your husband too i don't remember that oh yeah but I remember that she was there and maybe had a little cabin or something. Were you able at that particular, um, uh, not retreat, but what do we want to, like a workshop or conference? Uh, what is it to, called? A conference. Conference to engage fully with your daughter there or did you feel torn in some ways? I think the thing that made me feel torn during the times I was at Breadloaf, no offense, because I had wonderful times, was that I didn't get to live in the same building as the other faculty. I mean, I'm just being super honest. I, I They found me a really lovely place where my daughter and husband and I were able to live. And it was wonderful. And, I, you know, we had a wonderful time. But I didn't get to have those late-night conversations with other faculty that I wish that I could have had. Yeah. Um, 
And what can you do? (laughs) You know, it's like I was thrilled that they came along with me. I think when Ty was 12 weeks old, we were at Breadloaf. And I think I was nursing her all the time in the front row at the at the um, little theater. I did a lot of nursing at Breadloaf. And there were a few times when she completely like pooped up her diaper at weird moments and we had to come up with strategies and it was kind of wonderful. Yeah. It's a really wonderful experience to have, to have one's infant toddler child nearby. I mean, I, I won, I, I had a wonderful time. I don't think, um, I don't think that it, I think it was kind of great. People were kind to her. Uh, she figured out how to work those mailboxes really well and was showing people how to do it. I think during the, the, the year when we sure, met. Sure, yeah. Yeah. And it was just really, um, it was a wonderful experience and it, I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have traded in for anything. The one thing is I wish I could have spent more time talking to the other faculty. Yeah. But it could have been worse. My students were super understanding of her being around too. I would hope so. I hope they would be. Yeah. But I mean, they were, I they were great. Like, yeah. No, as a woman who was, um, so if my daughter's five, that was probably a year before I got pregnant and I was really struggling with whether I could be a writer and a mother. And I have to say, seeing you there with your uh-huh. child was so empowering to me. So thank you. Thank you for bringing your family. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. No, I mean, I you don't see that many that. examples, right? You you hear so much about how hard it is, but you don't see women actually doing it out in the world. So, oh, that was thanks, a great example. thanks a lot. No, I appreciate yeah. it. I mean, it's nice to know. I um, I feel lucky that, uh, for example, my my the people in my office have always been extremely supportive of me having her around at work. And at at various things. I think there was a 75th reunion for the workshop when she was three and she was just wandering around. And when I went up to give a talk, she would like walk up and sort of stand next to me. And actually the, the people who were upset about it were the women from the generation above me who were my bosses. Like my Dean boss said that she thought she shouldn't have been there much later, but, but Everyone else was totally great about it. And I think the only reason the dean was upset about it is because she was stressed. (laughs) She was stressed that something would go wrong. I don't think she was like – also, I think she came from a generation where people just didn't do that. But now we're in another generation. You can do that. You can basically do whatever. (laughs) Totally. No, and I think it's so important, and I've seen this so much more now with the pandemic of – women working from home, myself included, who say to their colleagues, I'm sorry, but I have to go <laughs> lunch for my child or whatever it is. I feel lucky Absolutely. that I'm able to do that. Like I have a job that, that allows me to do that and encourages me to, but, but it's important for women to, to show their children, I think. Right. I think it's super important. I think it's important to the entire society, not just to other women. I think it's important for people to know that children exist in their in their parents' lives. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit more. So we have um, a little time left. Tell me about the new new book and it comes oh, out sure. in 2022. Tell us a little bit about what it's about and um, yeah, oh, wow. anything you okay. want to share. You know, I'm one of four sisters, and I didn't want to write a book about sisters. Uh, 
I was, for years, I was obsessed with the Brothers Karamazov. Um, I taught classes on the book, not for not, not for credit at the workshop where people would just read it and then we would meet and discuss. And I was obsessed. I, I started to imagine sometime after I'd been to Yaddo that time, but no, it was actually during that time, but it, it took me a while to sort of realize it. I started to imagine that something I had started writing in 2005 was actually told in a voice that could carry over into a Chinese-American Brothers Karamazov. And what it was was back in 2005, this is before I moved out here or anything, um, I started thinking about a present tense voice, which I've never, ever been interested in, ever. I just started writing in this voice, and I really enjoyed it. It was fun. So, sometimes I feel like my the books that I had written – can't encompass like how complicated my personality is because I grew up in a very homogeneous uh, community in the upper Midwest many years ago because we were an immigrant family and we were one of like three Chinese families in our town and maybe four Asian families in the town of 50,000. Um, really I've developed a lot of different parts of my personality. And so I just couldn't find a vehicle to express it all until I came up with this project. I mean, I remember writing hunger and I was writing a fight between the father and her at father and uh, daughter and feeling like I want to be able to write a scene in which people are just screaming at each other, but it doesn't fit into the story. Like people screaming at each other, people laughing, people being loud, um, people being contemptuous people using a ton of exclamation points just didn't fit into hunger. Hunger was a quiet book. It was a quiet book about immigrant suffering. And like, I really felt for hunger when I wrote it. Like I, I felt all those feelings and I, you know, I, it was my effort to create, recreate the feelings that I felt our family had felt. And so I did that. But then I also felt like there was this whole side, which was basically this like really loud family that ate a lot, fought a fair amount of the time, unhappy and also laughing a ton. That was my family. And so I found this family, I found these characters, they just sort of, I figured them out. The archetypes are in the Brothers Karamazov, but they're basically, uh, this, you know, there's three brothers and a terrible father, um, and, uh, the brothers sort of love interests who are, you know, characters of their own. And I added, in the Brothers Karamazov, there is a dog, um, it doesn't belong to the family, but I added a dog that belonged to this family and it was just like a real pleasure. It's an actual dog that I know. So there's a real <laughs> dog in an in, in imaginary book. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's great. It's got, it's, I, I've tried, it's, it's hard to explain. It's about a community in the Midwest and about a particular family in that community. And, um, mysteriously, the disliked, much hated patriarch of the family mysteriously dies. And then, there, the question becomes who, how did he die? Was it a, was it an accident or was it a murder? And if so, then who did it? And so this runs through the whole book. Oh, it sounds wonderful. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed writing it. I totally enjoyed it. I can tell this from the way that you describe it, that, that it's just 
it seems like it was fun. Yeah, fun to write. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. My life is so busy and stressful. I wanted to write something to entertain myself. I wanted to write mm-hmm. something I thought was fun. And I really, like, enjoyed it. And I'm sorry I'm done with it. I mean, when I was writing it, I remember I remember having a conversation with Lauren Groff where she said, "How? what percentage done are you? And I said, I'm 41% or 42%. <laughs> At the time, that was basically where I was. She said, that's great that you know. She said, a lot of people would just go publish that book at 42%, <laughs> but you're going to work on it more because I was talking about how much I wanted to work on it. Yeah, and so I was keeping track. After that conversation, I kept track of it. One of the things I did to sort of encourage myself was to keep track of what percent I was on. And another thing I did to encourage myself was to break my work into like three-month cycles. Every three months, I would stop. And, and say, okay, you finished a draft, no matter where I was. And then I would start over again. It was really helpful. And I keep track of all those days in my book. I have this, like, elaborate strategy now that I'm trying to do with my new project that I'm trying to start getting working on now. So, I don't know. Yeah. it's, it's I love I feel strategy. like yeah. it's a great strategy. So, you have – let me see if I – no, I don't have my little book. Darn it. I'd show you my little book. I put post-it notes on every page of my calendar, my little journal calendar, numbering the day that it is. So day, you know, week one, day one, day two, day three, day four. And there's so, so those numbers don't coincide with the numbers on the calendar because I can't work on Tuesdays. I teach on Tuesdays mm-hmm. or I can't work on, you know, certain days and I'll skip those, but I'm always keeping track of like where I am on the way to get to three months. Oh. Yeah, that's great. I'm it's really that. interesting. Yeah, yeah it's it really cool. Like it's I mean, a, yeah. You know, there's something really helpful for me, and I don't know if it's true for everyone, in reassessing like every three months or three months, quote unquote, reassessing where I am, starting another three months. I have this log that I keep track of every writing day, and then at the end of three months, I stop and start another log, say this is what I want to do for the book in this in this draft, quote unquote, um, it's super, super helpful for me. And it took me like, what, 30 years to come up with a strategy where I'm actually getting work done on a regular, whatever. I'm just much slower than the average person. <laughs> it's taken <laughs> I mean, me a I long time. Who knows, right? I would love yeah. to see if you if you want to take a picture of, of your log book and maybe your mittens too, we can put them up on the Instagram page for Better Mother Monster. Oh sure. Okay. Sure, that would be exciting. Okay. okay. I'll message you about that later. And um Oh great. I forgot if I asked you ahead of time, so I'm just gonna put you on the spot and ask if you would be willing or um if you'd like to read just a few pages from either the new book or Oh, wow. Sure. I would love to read a little bit from the new book. Yeah. Let me just find it. We can send us off with a few pages. Okay. I'll just start with the very opening. How about that? That sounds great. Okay. It's called The Family Chow. And the book is in memory of James Allen McPherson, who is my beloved teacher, who died in 2016. Um. The first section is called Part One, They See Themselves. For 35 years, everyone supported Leo Chow's restaurant, introducing choosy newcomers to show off some real food, Chinese food, in Haven, Wisconsin. 
bringing children, parents, grandparents, not wanting to dine out with the Americans, not wanting to think about which fork to use. You could say the manifold tensions of life in the new country, focused on the future, tracking incremental gains and losses, were relieved by the fine chow, sitting down under the dusty red lanterns, gazing at Leo's latest calendar with the limp-haired Taiwanese sylphs that Winnie hated so much, waiting for supper, everyone felt calm. In dark times, when you're feeling homesick or defeated, there is really nothing like a good steaming soup and dumplings made from scratch. Winnie and Leo, Big Leo Chow were serving scallion pancakes decades before you could find them outside of a home kitchen. Leo, 35 years ago, winning his first poker game against the owners of a local poultry farm, exchanged his chips for birds that Winnie transformed into the shining chestnut-colored duck dishes of far-off cities. Dear Winnie, rolling out her being the homemade way, two pats of dough together with a seal of oil in between, rising to a steaming bubble in the piping pan. Leo, bargaining for hard-to-get ingredients. Winnie, subbing wax beans for yard-long beans, plus home-growing the garlic, greens, chives, and hot peppers you never used to find in Haven, their garden giving off a glorious smell. You could say the community ate its way through the Chow family's distress, not caring whether Winnie was happy whether Big Chow was an honest man. Everyone took in the food on one side of their mouths, and from the other side they extolled the parents for their son's accomplishments, heaping praise upon the three boys growing up all bright and ambitious, earning scholarships to good colleges, commending them for leaving the Midwest. Yet everyone was thankful when the oldest, Dago Chow, returned to Haven, Dago coming home to his mother, moving into the apartment over the restaurant, working there six days a week. Dago, the most passionate cook in the family. Despite the trouble between Winnie and Big Chow, everyone assumed the business would be handed down fairly, peacefully, father to son. And now, a year after the shame, the intemperate and scandalous events that began on a winter evening in Reunion Station, the community defends its 35-year indifference to the Chow family's troubles by saying, no one could have believed that such good food was cooked by bad people. Thank you. Oh, how wonderful. Sure. And so remind everyone when, when it comes out and when, sure. when we pre-order, let us know that too. I think pre-orders are starting in a couple of months and that the book is coming out in February 2022. Okay. All right. So when it's up for pre-order, let me know and I'll keep track of it too. I'll put it up on social so that people see that and I'll be the first to, to get one. Well, thanks so much, Laura. Thank you, Sam. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Stick around for a second after the fact so I can say goodbye, but it's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us as well. Um, as always, you can watch this interview again, read the transcript, listen to the audio, all on writermothermonster.com within the next few days. And um, please consider joining me as a patron or patroness of Writer Mother Monster to help me keep the podcast going. I will see you all next week and have a great night. Thank you.